Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, January 30th, 2022. We are still in January, believe it or not. And we are talking not about the Super Bowl. (laughs) Not yet. No. Playoff games, but yeah. (laughs) We have, we, I actually today muted terms like Super Bowl, Bowl, uh, what were the other words? Broncos, Brewers, uh, what are they called? Bengals. Bengals. (laughs) And some other teams. I don't know. We have some very intense, uh, Chiefs fans in our life. So, our condolences to them. I'm not going to see any of those pieces of news, and I'm I'm very much excited about yeah, it. Yeah, we're not. <laughs> Unfortunately, you can't tell the New York Times that you don't want to hear about it. So, oh my God, we'll get all their their alerts. news alerts. Jesus, did you know what's happening on Jeopardy this week? Everyone needs to know right now. <sighs> this is a world-shaking, breaking news alert. Okay, some game show. How is that breaking news? Hello. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> Let's highlight low light this week, Naomi. Well, before we do that, what shows did you look at, Brendan? Ah, yes. I looked at two shows this week. I looked at Meet the Press with Chuck Todd hosting, and I looked at State of the Union with Dana Bash hosting. I looked at the other three. So I looked at Fox News Sunday, which was hosted by Dana Perino. I looked at This Week, which was hosted by George Stephanopoulos. And then I looked at Fox News Sunday, which was Margaret Brennan, as usual. And those are all black boxes to me. I have no idea what happened on any of those shows. So it'll be interesting. That tends to be how we do it now. (laughs) It's not anything new. (laughs) It just seems like a lot. Okay. So quality questionable, Naomi. Did you have a quality or a questionable or both? I'm a minimalist. So I only have one. I see. (laughs) Do you have two? (laughs) Perhaps. (laughs) I have a questionable. It is Fox News Sunday. I could have picked out literally like a half a dozen different questionable moments hence dana perino yes dana perino who's been questionable for years on fox news sunday when she hosts correct i think we need to kind of think of a barometer of whether or not it's still worth it to do fox news sunday as they try to figure out who their permanent host is because sometimes it's decent with their subs but i literally hated every minute i hated every moment of the interview that she had with Senator Tom Cotton. Like, literally any question in that interview could have been our questionable moment. I chose, as an example, when they were talking about China, specifically the origins of COVID and kind of as the Olympics is about to start in a few weeks. And can you remind everyone who Tom Cotton is? I suppose. He is a senator from Arkansas. He's a Republican senator from the state of Arkansas. 
Great. Let's talk about China a little bit. Um, in just a few days, the Olympics will begin in China. We're in year three of the pandemic, and way back when it uh, was first becoming publicized that it was happening, you took a lot of flack from some quarters in which when you suggested it might have been a Wuhan lab leak. Uh, even the Washington Post corrected that. I'm sure you were gratified by that. But I want to ask you, you know, doesn't it matter kind of now more than ever that we get to the bottom of how this happened, even while China's about to have this great propaganda opportunity to show the world that they can host an Olympics even though they unleash this. Yeah, it very much does, Dana. Uh, it's a couple of years ago now uh, that I first said that maybe the virus came from that lab. I, I didn't even assert it as fact. I just said, you know, it's a question that we should ask uh, whether it came from this food market that didn't even have bats present, or, or maybe it, it came from the lab a few blocks down the street where they researched novel coronaviruses that originated in bats under the leadership of a scientist whose nickname was literally the Bat Lady. And, and of course, the Democrats and the media condemned that. But it's now become increasingly clear over the last year that the lab is almost certainly the origin uh, of this coronavirus. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like some uh, parts of our government helped fund the research there, and um, bureaucrats like Tony Fauci and Francis Collins even tried to cover up these inquiries two years ago. They encouraged the kind of left-wing scaremongering campaign about me and anyone else who pointed to the lab as a possibility. The world needs to know the origins of this virus, and China needs to be held accountable for it, especially especially as we go in to these Olympics that never should have been given to China, that should have been pulled from China uh, a year ago, and that should have been rebuilt elsewhere. We can't let China have a uh, big propaganda victory without any inquiry into their role in uh, spreading this plague around the world. Okay, so a few thoughts about this. The first immediate reaction is why is it impossible for Dana Perino and Senator Cotton to have zero nuance, like zero, both in the way the question is asked and the tone and kind of framing of this answer. Oh, that must have been gratifying for you when the Washington Post called you out, because <laughs> we all hate the Washington Post. <laughs> <laughs> we just love you. If we're on their shit list, it's um, very gratifying. <laughs> it's just, I haven't seen a single reputable public health official say, for sure, COVID came from the lab, right? Correct. There are plenty of people who are saying we should look into it. The protocols were sketch. Yes. Investigation is questionable. The role of the World Health Organization needs to be inve like investigated or examined. Yes. There's a lot of things about the origin of COVID that are worth exploring, learning, making sure they never happen again. So we're never in this cluster. Absolutely. Ever again. Correct. That I have seen over and over and over again. But what do you mean by you've seen it over and over again? In terms of people saying, like, these are all things that we need to investigate. Right. Right? But I, mean, I haven't hasn't... seen anybody say, for sure, this is what happened. This one bat lady released it or whatever. Right, right. We have definitive proof that it's the bat lady that did it. But that's not what we see here in this question nor in this answer. And nor do we see Dana. I mean, I don't have the follow up because she just moves on to another topic. But we don't see her you know, kind of clarify anything saying like, you know, well, so-and-so is looking into it or zero. So what you get are Fox News viewers assuming that every word that's coming out of this interaction is true. Right. That's just, <laughs> just because you want something to be fact doesn't actually make it fact. And the fact that Dana Perino supposedly as a journalist can't make that distinction is extremely problematic. 
like I said, this is just one example with one topic, but you see it over and over and over again throughout the interview with Senator Cotton and throughout the whole show, unfortunately. Yeah, and that's, I guess the point that is so frustrating is that absolutely Cotton has a case to say, look, everyone said I was crazy when I brought this up, but it's become increasingly clear that there are real questions about this and that it very well could have been a lab leak and it needs to be investigated and China at some point should be held accountable for that lab leak, as he's saying, if that's what happened. He could totally say that. But he goes way too far. He says it's increasingly obvious. It's almost certainly the origin. Increasingly obvious. Like, these are the words that he uses. Why do you have to do... Oh, and then there's a scaremongering campaign that the left wing encouraged and Tony Fauci and... Come on. Why do you have to go there, right? Just like with with the... Oh, it must be gratifying to be called out by the Washington Post. Ho, 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 ho. Like, why do you have to be so dumb about it? I don't get it. Well, and it's just like encouraging... An inflammatory tone. Correct. That is completely unnecessary. Yeah. Drives me crazy. Drives me crazy. Not fan. By the way, the lab leak question is a really important question, and we should get to the bottom of it. But if you read Scott Gottlieb's book, or lots of other sources, it's probably in other sources as well, you will note that China, even beyond the question of the lab leak, did a horrible job of managing the emergence of this virus and did, in fact, cover things up in the early stages when things could have been prevented, could have been stopped, could have sure, could have it, like not made it to the rest right, of the world. I'm not saying this to uh, defend the no, lab. No, no, no. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, if you want to like be mad at China for something, that is definitive, right? We don't have to wait for the lab leak thing to be true or not. We know for a fact that China did not handle the early emergence of this virus well, that China decided to send their military in rather than their version of the CDC to handle the situation, and they did a bad job, that the local government in Wuhan, in that province, covered it up because they were afraid of pissing off the people in Beijing. All of this happened, all of this is provable, and all of this is reason to say, China, you screwed up, And you should be punished with, I don't know, sanctions or this or that, or maybe you don't get the Olympics or whatever. Like, if you want... Which is not an American decision, to be clear. Right. But if you want a definitive reason to point the finger at China for messing up, you don't have to go to the lab leak question. You could go to just their lack of handling the virus well. 1,000% agree. No need to take the extremely inflammatory, extremely everything is on fire, everyone should be pissed type of approach. Not necessary, not helpful, and not very actionable. Correct. Brendan, what is your, you have more than one clip. I'm guessing, I don't know if it's a questionable highlight, two questionables, what what do you got today? I've got a quality and a questionable. So I've got you covered on both fronts. I want to start with the quality because I've got a lot of questionable content I will be talking about throughout the entire episode. That's funny. I have a lot of quality in my segment. Oh, good. Good. Let's begin with the quality for me. And that is at the end of State of the Union, Dana Bash did an excellent report with the CNN team on gerrymandering. And this is very newsworthy right now because the census just happened and according to the constitution districts have to be redrawn based on how populations have changed 
And Dana Bash did just an excellent job touching so many different issues and actually educating the audience in a thoughtful, intelligent, and truly, to the extent possible in the period she had, comprehensive way. Here are a few brief highlights from this extended report that she had. There are a lot of reasons the U.S. feels so divided these days. One is the way congressional districts are drawn. And even though we all know that's a problem, elected officials in state houses all over the country are guilty of trying to seize whatever advantage they can. We're in downtown Austin. Yes. This is an area that right now is represented by a Republican. It's going to change with the new lines. It, it is. It is. Austin, the capital of Texas, is a pretty liberal town. It's a key reason Republicans drew new congressional maps that took city blocks like this and progressives who live here out of their GOP districts. Here in Austin, what the Republicans did was pack as many Democrats into as few districts as possible. The Republican districts are not just going to be Republican, they're going to be very Republican. And the Democratic districts are going to be very Democratic. First, a primer. The Constitution says that every 10 years after the census, state political maps are redrawn based on population changes. In recent decades, state legislatures in both parties have taken to gerrymandering congressional districts. Redistricting is simply the process of redrawing the lines. Gerrymandering is redrawing the lines with the intent to, to benefit a particular party or group or individual. There are different kinds of gerrymandering. Packing, putting like-minded voters together, or cracking, separating them to dilute their influence. After the 2010 census, Texas Republicans went the cracking route, spreading the Democratic vote in Austin across Republican districts. This time, they packed. Republican Congressman Pete Sessions' district will be even more red. Since the 2010 census, Texas has gained nearly 4 million new people and will get two new congressional seats. A big Democratic criticism of the new Texas GOP-drawn map is that 95 percent of the new population is minority, and the two new seats were drawn for Republicans. The growth in this country, and especially in this area, is not Anglo. It is a mixture of minorities. And, and that should be reflected in the representation, and it is not. So as you see there, a mix of facts, kind of like primers, as she calls them, going into the, defining the terms of different ways that gerrymandering takes place. There are different strategies that are used by those in power as they're drawing these districts. Then she harkens back to the previous census, talks about what happened then, and then gives some data points, this last one being the most eye-popping, that 95% of the new population in Texas is a minority population, which data shows us tends to vote Democratic, and yet the two new seats that were drawn for are Republican districts. So, wow, just an incredible job. Now, she does in the report talk about how Democrats in some states do the same thing. And some of those Democrats, and I think it's one state in particular she was talking about, all of them refused to talk to her or CNN for this report, kind of afraid to face up to what they were actually doing. But she still got a good number of voices into the story. And uh, and I just think it's it's an excellent, excellent job. And note it. Note how she kind of like framed it about the way that the U.S. feels more divided and how dr the drawing of these districts is 
reinforcing that fact. One of the points that's made in the report is that when you make these districts more specifically Democratic or more specifically Republican, meaning that it's very unlikely, for example, that a Democrat could win in a Republican district, then it becomes competitive in the primary, not competitive in the actual general election, meaning that it's the Republicans fighting against other Republicans to prove they're more Republican, not to prove that they're going to actually get things done or represent everyone and every voice, but be as Republican as can be. This is really interesting because I think this is also a good story to show the power of local and state journalism and how if they were to have covered this story, it would be a very different approach and timing than national news, because essentially everything Dana Bash here is saying is pretty much set for the next 10 years. It's not it's completely irreversible. It's already been done. It's done. It's done. And instead, local and state journalist or journalists who cover local and state news would have been covering this in the last six months and talking about how to get involved, what to do, what's the process. And there's a lot of public input that is expected and is welcomed in the redistricting process. It's not like an opaque. I mean, it's it's opaque in that it's like kind of confusing. Sure. But it's all public record. And so... Like, cool, Dana Bash, like, this is shady, is kind of what we're learning, but it's... it's, it's there's nothing you can do about it There's nothing it right you now. can do about it now. Right. <laughs> yeah, so if it really pissed you off, I hope in nine years you right. remember... It's late. It's late to be providing a report like this if your goal is to provide actionable information for right. people, and rather that, than just an FYI. And that's the real problem of, you know, national political discourse, right? Like... It's often after the fact. It's often after after the fact. Very, very good point. But anyway, good facts, good coverage, important to talk about what's going on and raise awareness. I would also just note minorities in Texas are very interesting. And just because they're minorities in Texas doesn't mean they always vote Democratic. They're not the typical minority voter that we see in other parts of the country. Very important point. But Brendan, you said you also had a questionable Yeah, so I thought that was a well-produced report. Maybe not well-timed, but well-produced. Here is a report, an aside. You know, we love these things. We've always talked about them, these asides that kind of step away from the news of the moment. But they're not always done well. And here's an example of one that is pretty questionable. This is from Chuck Todd's data download, which is as he describes it, about free speech. Data download time, the increasingly common public debate over free speech took a few different forms this week. But whether you're talking about podcasts on Spotify or books in Tennessee classrooms, the issue remains. Americans are divided over what, when, where, and how things can or can't be said. And nowhere is this debate more apparent than on college campuses. These days, the importance of free speech in our democracy. Students almost uniformly agree on the importance here. 84% of all students, you look in demographic breakdowns, there's really barely a difference between white, non-white, male, female when it comes to the importance of free speech. Now, when it comes to the issue of how secure free speech is in this country, well, a couple years ago, there were majorities of Democrats, independents, and Republican students who all felt that free speech was pretty secure in this country. Two years later, the numbers haven't changed among Democrats here, but look at this down almost 50% among Republican students. There's majorities that believe colleges should be able to restrict offensive racial slurs. But go down. How about clothes with Confederate flags? Only a third believe 
that college campuses should do this. And what about presidential candidate posters? Even less than that at 10%. So this issue of free speech is something that students care about and with their experiences on campuses these days are worried about. So that's most of all the data in the data download. It's not the whole data download, but it's most of the data that we're actually shown. The framing is extremely questionable. Nowhere is free speech actually defined, right? Like, what is free speech? Why don't we define it? Well, if we're talking from a federal government perspective, free speech is defined as the government not infringing upon somebody's right to speak and say their opinion. Spotify is not an example of free speech. What's in the books of a Tennessee classroom are not a definition of free speech. What students can wear on campus is not a definition of free speech. None of these are definitions of free speech. None of these topics. So why are we calling it free speech? Maybe because some political party on one side of the aisle or the other has decided that when there are consequences to speech that others find offensive, it's therefore a violation of their free speech. That is not the case. But again, it is not defined here. It is not explained here. And the questions, just the data that is provided is very tenuous. Chuck Todd's closing conclusion is, the issue of free, free speech is something that students care about and with their experiences on campus these days are worried about. What experiences are we talking about? None were really referenced. What we heard was that some of the students have changed, particularly the Republicans, have changed their thinking on this. Nowhere is it explained how they've changed their thinking, why they've changed their thinking, driven by what? What on the right is changing their mind? What maybe messages or political dialogue or campaigning is changing Republicans' mind on these topics, Republican students. It's not explored, nor are these experiences described. All that he describes is that these students feel one way about whether they put up posters, they're allowed to put up posters with their preferred candidate, I guess, in their dorm walls. I mean, that's you're not describing actual policies at the campus or experiences at the campus. These are all just opinions. So the, these things are not being described in the piece that you're explaining. I mean, there's so much problematic stuff here happening. So first of all, a lot of times, and I'd be curious as to if this is like an NBC poll or where they're looking at the feelings of college students because they're often polling Ivy League or elite universities in what they're doing for free speech, which is not representative of the typical American college student, like plain and freaking simple. And if there's tension at Yale or Dartmouth or even UC Berkeley, <laughs> those are not typical of the like average college student. So there's that prop, like what is the sample that you're talking about in terms of specifically college tensions? Because they're always so overblown and made it seem to be reflective of some greater, you know, you know, generational war or fight or trauma happening on campuses. And that's just not the case. That's one. Two, it's so interesting because when people talk about, I think he mentions like books in Tennessee, who... Who's upset about these so-called free speech issues? It, it there's, <laughs> it's just like, gee, I I would think when 
books that talk about anti-Semitism are banned from certain universe or certain school districts. It's not just <laughs> perhaps the anti-Semitic parents that are complaining about it that care about this. Maybe Jewish parents and families have feelings about this. So, so oftentimes we say like people care about free speech. Right. They're only ever talking about the people who don't shut up and are okay with maybe <laughs> taking out really important educational materials or exploring heavier topics as opposed to the people who want that material covered and why they want that covered. Like it, it's it's who I think it was no, Cole Hannah-Jones, who called out Chuck Todd himself in December, who said when she's like, you know, parents care about this, but then African-Americans parents care about this, right. you know? And she's like, why are they different? Why mm-hmm. isn't it just like some parents care about this and some care- parents care about that? Like the default is white and that's the problem. And so all of these issues, when you just talk about like some people say this and some people say that, I'm like, what, what people are the default people that you're implying? And so like these like, you know, quick little, you know, swanky with the music kind of summaries, like just washes over all of that. And you're not really walking away with anything that you can truly understand. Yeah, there is no specificity here and no and no explanations either. Like, what are you talking about? You know, podcasts on Spotify. I know what he's talking about. Does everyone know what he's talking about? Do they know that he's talking about Joe Rogan telling people that they shouldn't get the COVID vaccine? Do people know that? About it. Yeah. Do people know that that's what that's being or, talked I should, about? I shouldn't say that. Spotify doing the bare minimum now. So my point here is not that we shouldn't talk about a political debate that's taking place, but the way that this was presented and the speed at which this was presented with the lack of nuance and specificity and the failure to define your term of free speech actually did more harm than good. It actually worsened the conversation and the dialogue rather than expanding it. Or even explaining it. Yes. So big thumbs down on that. Naomi, you said you had some quality things to talk about. So let's shift over to the quality gear with your main topic. Yeah, so I just wanted to give a shout out to Margaret Brennan. Just Margaret Brennan overall on finding the fresh angle on so many different topics and this is not like a new aha thing we've said this about her before but it just was really clear today when i looked at this week and i looked at fox news sunday and i was bored out of my mind and then i looked at face the nation and i was like gee that was interesting or like ooh, that was an interesting question or like oh way to dig that in you know like there were so many moments just like hmm spicy cool and i'm excited whether it's about what questions she asks or who she books, she's just having a different conversation than her counterparts. And I just wanted to kind of show some examples of that. All right, let's get started. So the first one is her favorite guest, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, of course. One of our favorite guests. That's true. And she often brings up the issues of how the pandemic's affecting young children, specifically under five who are not eligible for the vaccine. She's asking like very specific questions, like things that parents could take away and understand ideally. And that's not what we've seen on any other shows. Take a listen to this first example where they talk about new guidance from the CDC for daycare centers. 
So, you know, and we talked about it there. Uh, every time that there is an infection, these child care centers have to shut down. That creates practical problems for parents who want to go out and participate in the economy. They want to show up for work. I mean, this is a drag for the country. The CDC issued new guidance to child care centers. It recommended toddlers remain masked. It lowered the recommendation for isolation post-infection to about five days. Is this prudent? Is this good health policy along with economic policy? Well, look, I think they're doing all they can do, but the guidance really focuses on trying to prevent spread within the daycare center. I think we need to focus a little bit more attention on trying to prevent introduction into those settings because once you get an infection in that setting, it's hard to control. You know, you got kids who don't wear masks very well. I think it's hard to ask a two or a three year old to wear a mask. Even if you keep them in social pods, they're going to play together. So it's hard to control transmission within that setting. I think we should be focusing more on trying to keep the infection out in the first place. Mm -hmm. Now, this is such like a great Dr. Gottlieb answer talking about, well, the CDC is saying this, but my recommendation is to focus on these things specifically, less on transmission within a daycare and, and instead focusing on not getting infections inside the daycares to begin with. Because yeah, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, they're not going to be great at wearing a mask all day. But the question itself is really helpful because she's saying, the policies for daycare centers are, are extremely disruptive. She doesn't even go into that specific examples, you know, on how some daycare centers will close for a week or close for 10 days or, you know, a class has to close, you know, one positive case and then a class has to close for like 10 different families and just, right. It, it's a, absurd. You know, anyone who's experiencing this directly understands exactly what Dr. Gottlieb is saying. Like, we actually have to keep the virus out and less about controlling it within the, the daycare. Right. I like, haven't, like, you're focused on the wrong thing. Right. You're focusing on the wrong point, like, on, on the wrong phase. Exactly. There was another question around COVID and children and the details in which, you know, and the numbers that Dr. Gottlieb shares are just kind of gutting in terms of how low the vaccination rate is among children. Well, but to that point, and you know what, because I ask you almost every week, because my own kids can't get vaccinated, uh, that that's just going to continue to be a risk, right? Until the youngest children, four and under, can get a vaccine. So this portion of the puzzle, um, if, if a vaccine is greenlit for the youngest Americans, does it unlock everything else? Does this start to move us back to normal? I don't think it unlocks everything else for a couple of reasons. Number one, a lot of we're seeing a lot of parents with young kids aren't getting their kids vaccinated. Only about 25 percent of kids, five to 11, have been vaccinated. It's been very disappointing. About 18 percent have been fully vaccinated. So I suspect that there's going to be some hesitation with the youngest kids as well. We can't fully explain it. Also, while the vaccines prevent infection, so if a fully boosted adult has probably a 50% lower chance of getting infected in the first place with that vaccine. They're not they're not 90% protective and probably in the younger kids they're going to be a little less protective against infection. So you're still going to see kids be able to get infected even if they're vaccinated. What the vaccine's going to do is protect them from bad outcomes and we've seen a lot of bad outcomes with kids. There is some indication if you listen to federal health officials that they may be rethinking the vaccine in zero, in 6 months to 4 years old and I'm hopeful that you could see some movement on trying to entertain that application earlier. Ultimately, the decision resides with FDA, mm -hmm. but there is some indication that there may be an earlier action on that application. Only about 25% of kids, five to 11, have been vaccinated. Madness, just crazy. Because you look at the rates of uh, Americans in general, how many have been fully vaccinated, so much higher than that. 
And so it's like, how many households are there where the parents are vaccinated, but they haven't gone through the trouble of vaccinating their children? Like, what is what the hell is going on here? Which brings so many questions up in mind. Like, why, why isn't that statistic more front and center when we're talking about keeping schools open, when we're talking about the demands of teacher unions, when we're talking about the messaging that pediatricians are have access to and are sharing with their own patients? Right. There's so many point breakdowns that are reflective of this 25% vaccination rate. That's a whole show in in of itself, you know? Right, absolutely. And we're not talking about it. And so, you know, like this is just like one point in this interview that was just like, oh, wow. Like when our kid is able to get vaccinated, like won't really matter if like every, you know, 75% of her peers in a daycare aren't vaccinated. So it's just... Well, there's so much. Matter. I mean, yes, I know that it'll still matter, but it, it's just there's a lot of parents holding on to like some hope as Margaret Brennan shares here. Like when my kid gets vaccinated, we're like, well, things feel normal. And he's like, nah, sorry. Like just the world of pediatrics right now is not that vaccinated. Yeah. So I just want to reflect on how insane it is that kids still can't get the vaccine. It's like. As we heard just a moment ago in one of these other stories, we're in year three of the pandemic now. And I mean, younger than, younger than five can't get the vaccine. Right, mm-hmm. right. The first vaccines went out in December of 2020, and we're now in 2022, and kids under five still can't get the vaccine in a world that is still deeply in a pandemic. It's like, what the hell is going on here? Where are our priorities? Why can't we get this together? I, I think of Titanic, right? Women and children first. This is like the opposite. Children last. Children get it last. Protection last. That's our priority. Years later, the ship is freaking two miles under the Atlantic Ocean. The kids still don't get to get in the lifeboat. Meanwhile, their parents are in the lifeboat and they're just like, oh, well, 20% of parents have let their kid in the lifeboat. Yeah, well, now we're mixing up age groups. And I'm aware. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of reasons why testing on children is harder to get approved. But but get it together. It's been enough time. Just do it. But the thing is, is that even for the. (laughs) okay, we're not going to have this fight. (laughs) It's still insane for the vaccines that are approved for five and up. The kids aren't getting vaccinated either. I agree on all these points. Yeah. So anyway, interesting angles to talk about COVID, right? Because even though we've been doing COVID coverage for, as we mentioned, going into year three, there are stories and questions that are not being asked. And Margaret Brennan here is is doing the hard work and kind of making that front and center. And can I just point out every moment that passes, children under five are getting immunity from COVID all the time by getting COVID like our daughter did. That is true. Not the best way to acquire immunity, as Dr. Gottlieb will tell you. So another interview that I thought I thought was one, just like an excellent booking, but also just kind of the questions that were asked were stellar, was the interview that Margaret Brennan had with Representative Jim Clyburn. He is a congressman from the state of South Carolina. A lot of people mention how Clyburn has a lot of leverage here with the Supreme Court replacement of Supreme Court Justice Breyer because he essentially helped revive then-candidate Biden's presidential campaign. Yes. And one of the things that he told him would be huge is if Biden promised to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court. And Biden did. And 
black women showed up for Biden. <laughs> like yep. Clyburn's not a dummy. He knows what he's talking about. So Clyburn has a lot of clout here. And there is a candidate, Michelle Childs, from South Carolina that is on the shortlist for consideration. And it's, you know, Representative Kyburns is pushing for this judge. Take a listen to the question from Margaret Brennan asking why this matters. And I just, I love Clyburn's framing of, of this moment. You had just shared that you'd spoken to President Biden months ago with Michelle Childs, uh, a candidate we know for this potential spot on the Supreme Court. More broadly, you were the man who really exacted this promise during the campaign from President Biden. What do you think putting this kind of diversity on the court, the first black woman does for the country? Well, it says to every little child out there growing up uh, under moderate circumstances, uh, needing the entire community to help raise it, getting scholarships to go off to school because you couldn't afford to go Otherwise, going to public schools because you didn't get an offer from one of the big uh, private schools, uh, it says to them, you've got just as much of a chance uh, to benefit from the greatness of this country as everybody else. As you probably know, I have made it the motto of my service, making America's greatness accessible and affordable for all Americans. And that's what this will do. That's the kind of conversation I had uh, with candidate Biden uh, way back when he was running for president. In fact, we had those conversations when he was serving as vice president, that he uh, came up under modest circumstances, mm -hmm. Scranton, Pennsylvania, right. there in Delaware. And look, uh, he should have as much opportunity as everybody else. Now, what Clyburn isn't saying here is that we haven't had a Supreme Court justice that isn't from an Ivy League university or an Ivy League law school. Which is insane. It's pretty gross. <laughs> pretty classist. And this branch of government deserves, like Americans deserve for this branch of government to feel accessible, to feel dreamable, to feel as if like their contributions could matter in that space. Right? 100%. And I think what's interesting here is, you know, Clyburn mentions... Biden is one of those people. <laughs> like, right. He didn't go to an Ivy League. He, he didn't go to an Ivy League. And it and it matters. And it's such a... There were so many people talking about the different candidates and talking about, you know, a black woman being on the Supreme Court. You know, there were people saying like, oh, it shouldn't be like affirmative action, which is like, I'm not even going to give airtime 10 seconds to that. But Clyburn kind of has a fresh approach of saying like, it, it, <laughs> it's about... What, what perspectives and what experiences were saying, hey, they should be at the Supreme Court too. And also those experiences shape their opinions that they write on the court. What they write on the court is literally called opinions. And those are shaped by, imagine that, experiences. So having different experiences that reflect the country, we might get opinions that reflect those of more of the country. I will note that Senator Lindsey Graham was also on Face the Nation. Margaret Brennan asked about Michelle Childs to him, and he's all about it. He loves Michelle Childs. He's like so excited to have like a South Carolinian judge who he is supportive of to to be on the Supreme Court. So it was a very interesting moment of 
bipartisan agreement between these two South Carolina yeah. men. Carolinians. Carolinians. And then speaking of Senator Lindsey Graham, I wanted to note this moment when Margaret Brennan was talking to him specifically about the tensions between Russia and Ukraine. And it is not new. I'm not I'm not. This is not breaking news that Senator Lindsey Graham is kind of a Warhawk. <laughs> and it's oh, always... That's right. <laughs> I haven't seen Warhawk Graham for a while. We've yeah. seen kind of crazy Trumper yeah. Graham for a while. Yeah, democracy can die, um, Graham. But, you know, he's all about saying that we need to be stronger against Russia and need to be more proactive in the sanctions and things like that. And Margaret Brennan had some really important follow-ups while he was speaking, something we did not see in any of the interactions that Dana Perino had in any of her interviews when she talked about Ukraine. Take a listen. We know President Biden is already looking at sanctions after an invasion. He's looking at sovereign debt yeah. sales, hitting oligarchs close to Vladimir Putin, the banks that handle critical industries yeah. and on top of export-import restrictions. Yeah. Is this enough, or are you saying you're pushing President Biden further? Uh, the bipartisan working group uh, will uh, submit sanctions now. Look what Putin has done. He's, he's On dismantled. what specifically, though, He's do you hurting want? the, oh, uh, an array of pre-invasion sanctions. Uh, the uh, Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is a cash cow for Putin, that'll probably be after the invasion, knocking them out of financial systems that they will need to conduct business normally, the SWIFT program. All of this is on the table, but the we European need allies to hit don't him now. That. It is 20. Well, uh, the Congress has a different view here. I want sanctions on Putin's behavior now. What is Putin doing? He's threatening, uh, he's wanting to get his way by threatening to invade a country. This is 2022, for God's sake. That's not mm -hmm. the way to resolve disputes. So I think there'll be bipartisan support for sanctions now. There'll be a bipartisan support for more, more lethal aid now to the Ukraine, more economic uh, assistance to the government now. And yeah. I think there's bipartisan support to reinforce NATO. So two really important follow-ups here, which is saying there's bipartisan support for, you know, sanctions. And she's saying when, which, what kinds of sanctions, right? You know, let, let's, let's talk about what you actually want versus and how that compares to the, what the White House wants. And then when he talks about the pipeline, you know, she makes it really clear, like European allies don't, don't want that. How is Congress going to push something that really our European allies are saying they're they're not for? And right, and, the, and what's not being said there is Biden's not going to vote or is not going to sign that then. Right, right, because he wants to keep Europe together, which he has been really focused on in this crisis. But it's a very interesting discussion, interesting back and forth between him and Margaret Brennan, and you know Graham has. A point that I think is worth debating. It's like, look, you can't intimidate countries and then get your way through intimidation. That's just not the way to go about things. It's literally military intimidation is how you're trying to get your way. And how, how can we stand for that? But at the same time, it's like, well, if you punish him just for the intimidation, then what's the further punishment for invasion? Maybe it's not that much. And so that's, I think, what people are, are worried about. If you punish him all now, then he's going to say, well, I have nothing to lose from invading. The only thing I have from in like from invading is getting what I want. So I'm just going to get it. I'm going to take it. Well, and I we've had so many interviews with Secretary Blinken and other people from the State Department that aren't talking about these specifics. Right. Right. And they're not saying 
hey, what do we do when Germany doesn't want this, but we have our Congress that does want us to be harder? Like, what are, what are the steps that the State Department is trying to yeah. deal with this diplomatically? There's a lot of kind of surface level talk. And Margaret Brennan is just always so great at kind of like diving right in. Another example of this, just to kind of close out our segment today on Margaret Brennan kind of having the fresh angle, she actually interviews Osana Markarova. She's the Ukraine's ambassador to the United States. It is wild she hasn't been booked before. Just a really great booking. It was kind of at the end of the show, but I still found it really, really valuable to say like, hey, help us understand directly what Ukraine wants. Specifically, there is some recent tension between the U.S. and Ukraine because the Ukrainian president, Zelensky, pretty much said, like, the United States has to stop making everybody panic about what's happening here, even though things are not great in the Ukraine. Margaret Brennan explores this tension between the U.S. and Ukraine in the interview. Take a listen. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, says he hasn't seen a military buildup like this since the Cold War. Artillery, ballistic missiles, ground air forces. He said the impact would be horrific if Russia uses these. But President Zelensky stood up and said Russia may simply be applying psychological pressure. Why is your president downplaying the risk? Uh, we are not downplaying the risk. We actually see the situation the same way and we see the build up and we also know what Russia is capable of because they have attacked us already since 2014. For eight years we are at war and we are defending our country. At the same time, in order to defend our country, we cannot afford to panic. We have to get ready, all of us, not only our military, our very capable military and veterans, but also all civilians. So we know and we see what's going on. This is the reality with which we live for eight years. This is the reality, this recent escalation since April. Mm -hmm. So we monitor it, we assess it. We share the information with our friends and allies. We are very grateful for the United States for very strong, relation, strong relations and strong response this time. But your president said Ukraine's grateful for support, but I can't be like other politicians who are grateful to the United States just for being the United States. What does he mean by that? Because it sounds a lot like there's some friction here. There is no friction. I mean, uh, look, we can have some discussions and we can have difference of opinions, but United States is our strategic partner and I would even say strategic friend, number one. Uh, our relations, especially during the last year, has been at the highest level ever, I would say in 30 years. So very, very interesting here to just have the Ukrainian ambassador to help us understand this tension and these conflicting statements from the Department of Defense versus Ukraine's own president and what this country really wants from us. And and those are things that Margaret Brennan kind of asks in her follow up questions like, what are you asking of Congress? How is that similar or the you know, different than what you have agreed with President Biden on? It's just kind of like a fascinating like, let's just talk to the people or talk to a person where it's actually affecting their country. Right. <laughs> like, when, it, when, she, when I heard who was booked and like who she was talking to, I was like, oh, yeah, we Obviously, should have been hearing from them a long time ago. Yes, absolutely. So there is kind of my round robin. Margaret Brennan is doing things just always a smidge more interesting than a, 
I should say always. She's often doing things <laughs> a smidge more interesting than her counterparts. And that's what makes Face the Nation a show where you get something that you can't get anywhere else and often is kind of really worth it. Excellent. Brendan, what did you notice on your shows? So I wanted to talk about the Supreme Court today because we learned last week in probably one of the biggest pieces of political news that Stephen Breyer, Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court, was going to actually finally retire. He is the justice that we have talked about occasionally here because his name has been bandied about. He also wrote a book, I think, in the last couple years. As somebody who probably should be considering retirement, considering he was appointed by President Clinton back in 1994. He is over the age of 80. And if the idea is that he's going to be replaced by a Democrat, now is probably the time when the Democrats have control of the Senate. And indeed, finally, after kind of declining and rebuffing these sorts of requests for the first year of Biden's term, he has said he's ready to retire. So big, big news anytime a president is going to appoint a Supreme Court justice, but also big, big news anytime a Supreme Court justice announces they're retiring, they're leaving, because we really should probably be reflecting on who this person is, especially since we don't actually know who is going to be appointed yet. We might not know that for several weeks. So I wanted to reflect on this reality in today's episode because I was unbelievably disappointed in the two shows that I covered in how little they actually talked about the one thing we actually do have information on, which is Justice Stephen Breyer. Who he is, what his legacy is, what he did right, what he did wrong, what was questionable, what was quality in his over 20 years of serving on the U.S. Supreme Court. Here is, for example... And remember, let's just remind ourselves, the Supreme Court is one of the co-equal branches of the federal government, co-equal with the Congress, co-equal with the presidency, and yet definitely not, 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 not even close to co-equal in coverage on the Sunday morning political shows. We rarely talk about the Supreme Court. We almost only talk about it as it relates to the presidency, or Congress. Here is every single mention of Breyer's name as it occurred on Meet the Press this week. The announced retirement of Justice Stephen Breyer. People have come to accept this constitution, and they've come to accept the importance of the rule of law. Mr. Biden was thrown a lifeline with the news that Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer would indeed retire at the end of this term. President Biden vowed to keep his promise during the campaign that he would appoint an African-American woman, to the first court opening he had. That could help with declining black support. Of course, replacing Breyer with another liberal won't change the court's current conservative tilt. But Mr. Biden finally has an open field with a real chance to put some points on the board and at least temporarily change the narrative of his presidency. Among the likely contenders, Ketanji Brown-Jackson of the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. She's a former Breyer law clerk, 51, and has twice been confirmed by the Senate. Ketanji Brown-Jackson, obviously on the circuit, on the D.C. circuit, she has been before this committee, this Senate, has received 53 votes. Uh, based on what you have, what you know about her, do you think she should be the front runner for this post? 
I sure don't want to speculate on that. Uh, the White House made it clear when they told me about the prior vacancy that they had not decided, the president had not made the decision. Well, and think back about Stephen Breyer. Here's a man who worked as the chief assistant to Ted Kennedy. And when his vote came up uh, in the Senate, he was approved 87 to 9. Uh, it, it's an indication of the good old days when there was much more bipartisanship. When we come back, will President Biden's chance to replace Stephen Breyer on the Supreme Court give him the political lift he and his party so desperately need? Wow, what a reflection on Stephen Breyer's legacy. The only facts that we learn there are that the man's name is Stephen Breyer. He was a Supreme Court justice. We have a quote from him. And let me just read this quote. It is it is something you're going to want to write down and put in your little book of quotes, all right? Because it's so insightful. People have come to accept this Constitution, and they've come to accept the importance of the rule of law. I mean, my God, put that on an inscription somewhere. So we know he, he, he feels that. What else did we learn? Senator Dick Durbin, Democratic senator, that was the other voice we heard other than Chuck Todd, he had actually the most information there. We learned that he worked as chief assistant to Ted Kennedy and that Breyer was approved 87 to 9. He was approved in the good old days. The good old days, yes. So that is it. That's all we've learned about Stephen Breyer. We didn't actually learn that he was appointed by Clinton. We didn't actually learn that he is one of only nine justices. We, we didn't learn anything. We hardly learned anything, okay? It's outrageous. No retrospective on his life, legacy, importance, controversy, triumphs, failures, nothing. Completely unacceptable. It is awful, 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 awful. But amazingly, it is leagues ahead of State of the Union, the other show that I covered this week in terms of information on Stephen Breyer. Because here is every mention of Breyer on State of the Union this week. Let's move on to the Supreme Court. Uh, President Biden pledged to nominate a black woman to succeed Justice uh, Stephen Breyer. On Friday, uh, Republican Senator Roger Wicker said whoever Biden picks will be a, quote, beneficiary of affirmative racial discrimination and filling a, quote, quota. Do you agree with that? That's it. There we go. That's the only time the word Breyer was spoken on the entire episode of State of the Union this week. So I, I, I know the man completely now, Brendan, between all these clips. I, I, my blood is absolutely boiling. It's like, again, he is one of nine people with extreme power over our lives and our government system. Zero accountability for his actions. Zero accountability for his legacy. Nothing. It's like, I, I can't even, it's, I don't even know what it's like. It's like, you know what it's like? It's like the guy, did you ever learn that um, in Back to the Future, okay? Marty McFly, the person who plays Marty McFly, you know who played him? The actor? Yes, I know who played Marty McFly. Who was it? Michael J. Fox. Right. Did you know that Michael J. Fox was were, not the original yes, person? I, I did. And do you know the name of the person who was the original person? No, because the original person just like disappeared. Right. Nobody knows. Okay. Yes, you could look it up. But nobody knows this. We all know Michael J. Fox. And that's who they're treating Stephen Breyer as. The guy who nobody knows his name. He's not important. Doesn't matter. But guess what? It does matter. He was a Supreme Court justice for over 20 years. So as you noticed... Most of the conversation 
was framed around Biden's pledge, as you mentioned, Naomi, with Representative Clyburn, and also what it means to Biden's presidency. And this is a lifeline for Biden and blah, 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 blah. But that's it. That's all we got. So I have quotes from those things. It doesn't matter. It's useless. It's meaningless. It's all like speculation at this point because we don't know who he's replacing Breyer with. Nothing's happening yet. Nothing is happening yet. I mean, I I will say, or I will try to counter this with one small caveat, is that this story is new, right? And maybe we'll have Agreed. a new judge within, what, 40 days as they did with... Yeah, 38 days. As it's Mitch McConnell did with Amy Coney Barrett. But it's still at least three Sundays where they can explore Breyer's legacy. In general, the Democrats are probably going to take forever and at least take three to four months would be my guess. And so there's a way to explore kind of what Breyer's voice has been on the Supreme Court, how he has voted. Is that a stance that they want to preserve or do they want to have someone has a right. different approach yes. or whatever? It's still an early story to still be able to explore that, but we should actively be looking for it. Yeah. And like I said, I'm not looking for hagiography. Like, I want to see actual critical discussion of this critical member who is still a Supreme Court justice. And yet, time and time again, these justices, by not showing up to the Sunday shows, by somehow we're allowing them to, like, never have interviews, never be hounded by the press. How is this okay? I know there are reporters at the Supreme Court that try to get the backroom stories, but they should be under intense pressure all the time, just like any senator, just like any president, to get on television, to answer questions, to be held accountable for their decisions, their actions, their thinking, to ensure that they are doing their job right. So I'm just, I'm so frustrated. So anyway, I thought I would provide, I tried to learn who the hell is this guy, right? Let's try to find out. There's a remarkable dearth of good information and reporting out there, including from written published sources that I could find about this man. One of the most interesting things that I found was a piece put together, a series of pieces put together by Harvard Law Review that talked about his legacy on the court on the 20th anniversary of his appointment. And there were all these things like writing about how great he was because he has quite a connection to Harvard Law. So it's all just, again, this is all just praise. Um, But there were some interesting stories in here about decisions that he had made and impacts he had like had over the years. And you get a sense of like what his thinking was. There was a a piece by Oyez.org, which is a resource on law and information uh, of that ilk. Their short little biography of him notes that by the age of 29, he'd already earned a place as associate professor at Harvard Law. <laughs> yes. Insane. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. In 1973, he was an assistant special prosecutor of the Watergate Special Prosecution Force. So he was involved in that. He joined the Senate Judiciary Committee and was chief counsel for them for a few years, hence working for Ted Kennedy, who was head of the Judiciary Committee. And he was appointed by Carter to the U.S. Court of Appeals, where he served for 14 years before being appointed to the Supreme Court. 
So he was actually a judge for 14 years rather than Amy Coney Barrett, who was a judge for what? Two, four, three? Very few before going to the Supreme Court. But it was a different time, right? Clinton was considering Breyer for the appointment that he ended up appointing Ruth Bader Ginsburg for. But Breyer lost the spot. And then when another opening came up, Breyer had a meeting scheduled to meet with President Clinton. And then he was hit by a car while riding his bike. And he broke ribs. He punctured his lung. But he like left the hospital so he could go to the meeting with President Clinton and was ultimately appointed in 94. So that's a story. Can we just tell a little story like that? Ah, just nothing. There's just nothing. Um, Oyez does say, and this was interesting, Breyer is known for being the most pragmatic justice on the bench. His decisions are often guided by maneuvering around the real-life consequences to the people affected by the decision. This principle can abandon the strict interpretation some of his fellow justices favor, particularly the more conservative ones that believe in originalism, which is just what's on the paper of the Constitution, or so they tell us. Oh, oh, this was another interesting thing, okay? So apparently, back in 2012, the Supreme Court had a very important decision on the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate. And at that time, seven members of the Supreme Court voted to strike down the Affordable Care Act's expansion of Medicaid. Seven, right? That's not a split decision between the so-called liberals and conservatives. And of that seven, there were two so-called liberals, Elena Kagan and Stephen Breyer, who voted to strike down this expansion of Medicaid. You might say, well, why would he do that? What was that all about? Well, it's been speculated by some reporting, by actual reporters who cover the Supreme Court, that that could have been in return for Chief Justice John Roberts' critical vote to uphold the individual mandate and basically save the law from oblivion at that time. So very interesting pragmatism, interesting political choice, a very important result that impacted millions of people's lives and their health care. But let's not talk about that decision, right? Let's not consider that. There's lots of examples here. But none of them were discussed on either of the Sunday shows I covered. I don't know if you had any detail on any of this on your Sunday shows, Naomi. No, it was mostly about the replacement. It wasn't really about Breyer himself and his voting record. It's just outrageous. So when are we supposed to learn about this, right? And again, reflecting on his choices and his decisions and his qualifications and his nomination will inform us when we're considering the new person right? And when those debates are taking place, and we're trying to figure out what makes a good justice. But it seems like the shows don't care about that. And I hate, by the way, I hate the framing that we heard from Chuck Todd early, where he's like, you know, this won't actually change the composition of the court, because it's a liberal justice who is retiring, who will be replaced by a liberal president with another liberal justice. So it doesn't change the shape of the court. Well, yeah, right now it doesn't. But justices matter a lot. And as we've learned as recently as John Roberts, a justice that is appointed by one party could very well side with the other justices or the other political spectrum over time and shift and move and evolve and make opinions 
that have far-reaching ramifications down the line, and we have no idea who's going to be the swing vote on the Supreme Court in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years. A lot of the people, almost all of them now, who are being considered are in their early 50s. So it is extremely conceivable that they will be there in 30 years. We don't know what that court will look like. And so it is very important, very, very important, who we choose and their governing philosophy. But if we don't have even the basic knowledge of what that job even is, how are we supposed to have informed conversations about it? Well, and especially since we're already having conversations about some of these women who are supposedly on the shortlist and, you know, which senators have supported them before in terms of being on appeals courts or, or what have you. And we're talking about the future without giving any context as to what the past has been with that seat. And again, like if it's supposed to be actionable, if it's supposed to be something that you want the average American to feel like they know what is happening and why it matters, then that context is, is really needed. Exactly. I mean, we have had actual lookbacks to like consider the legacies of people like General Petraeus, right? This guy who is actually not a member of a critical branch of government. He's a general. He's very important. The military is very important. Our role in the world is very important. But he's not up there with the Supreme Court justice. And yet we have had lookbacks and reflections and considerations of the legacies of generals but not of Supreme Court justices. That's because America loves talking about war and warheads and people who are leading war. Like, but I hear you. Yeah, it's it's just, I understand why I'm saying it's unacceptable. So do better. Please, 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 please do better Sunday shows. And please devote, if you devoted 10 times more time to talking about the Supreme Court in a nuanced way than you do now, you would still talk about it 10 times less than either of the two branches that you spend all your time talking about, Congress and the White House. And your audience would be served so much better. I'm not asking a lot. I'm just asking you to be 10 times better than you are. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Naomi, that's it. I'm done. I could tell you a whole story. I cut one about uh, gene patenting, but I will skip it. Way to be strong, Brendan. Yes, decision that he made there. So that's it for Polylog this week and every week. We encourage you to make your dialogue count. Yeah, and I think in general, I would say like in the stories or the problems that you're finding in your own community or in the news you're consuming or just like challenges at work, like how often are we trying to fix the problem or fix the situation that's ahead of us without trying to truly understand what has happened in the past and maybe just give yourself a few you know some breathers some space to be able to do that reflection and talk it over with somebody critical conversations i think crucial if you'd like to share any critical crucial conversations with us i mean if it's truly crucial you have to yeah (laughs) go ahead and Well, if it's truly crucial, you should probably tweet at us because it's easier to respond to those than it is to emails. You can tweet at us at Polylogcast on Twitter. You can tweet at me at Beastidle. You can tweet at me at SotoNaomi underscore. And you can send us an email at podcast at polylog.com. Thanks, everyone. Please consider rating or sharing the show if you have a moment because that is very much appreciated. But if you don't, do it next week. (laughs) That's fine. Talk to you then. (laughs) Bye. Bye.